Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this program, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, our companion series at the United Ireland podcast, where we talk to brilliant journalists about the stories that matter. It's Una here. Our guest this month is Lise Hand, a self-described rowdy journalist at large, found in, and I quote, media scrums, proper pubs and the occasional mosh pit. Lise's career crosses the Sunday Tribune, the Sunday Independent, the Irish Independent and the Journal. She began her print career in music journalism, evolving into an excellent colour writer, focusing on what happens behind the scenes and on the stage of Irish politics. By the time I started at the Sunday Tribune in 2005, Lisa had already returned to New York, where she had been based previously. But although she was no longer physically in the newsroom on Bagot Street at that time, her presence still loomed large. The chat in Towners after work almost always seemed to involve tales in which she was the main character, either borrowed retellings of her own escapades or some cracking line she had come with recycled by someone else for our enjoyment. She is a journalist in the classic mould, curious, incredibly intelligent, an encyclopedic knowledge of Dublin's music scene, its pubs and clubs, brilliant turn of phrase, a cracking sense of humour, a great writer and hugely fun and kind. It's for these reasons that we thought she'd be the perfect guest to reflect not only on her career and the media that shaped it and was shaped by it, but also about the echoes from the Great Recession, which she covered to now, 2020, where the political landscape in Ireland has once more shifted dramatically. Thank you to our Patreon supporters who make the Byline series possible. You can support us by heading to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. For now, let's hang out for a little bit with the brilliant Lise Hand. Lise Hand, hello. Hello, Una. We always begin by asking people how and why and when they got into journalism. So what does that look like for you? Oh, God. Well, I probably fell into journalism simply because when I was in school, I quickly realized that, I mean, I was completely a new rush, so that ruled out anything in maths and finance. Um, I didn't have the patience to teach. and I was an absolutely crap cook. So, you know, by process of elimination, I was down to the point where I was getting good marks in English. So I sort of at some stage made a decision, well, I might as well try and find a career that, uh, you know, that I could actually use my single skill set at and that turned out to be journalism. So, and, you know, I suppose also as well, I did, I mean, I do, I know this is such a cliche and it's probably everyone's going to eye roll, but I do remember watching uh, All the President's Men and just thinking how cool it was. I mean, Mm. how cool it was. So it was probably a combination of good at English and sort of like the look of that film and the lifestyle that it it, uh, projected, which is obviously sitting around a you know, a badly furnished, overbright newsroom getting roared at by men. So I don't know, must be the sort of the masochist in me or something. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Dunleary and um, very much part of the, of the, I love Dunleary, still do, still live quite close to it. And yeah, I mean, sort of, I had the the bane of every creative writer's life. I had a completely normal childhood and upbringing, you know, no major dramas or hassles or anything like that. A very, you know, close-knit, well-balanced family. Um, So, um, you know, once I finished school, I went off to UCD uh, to study, naturally, English. Um, And that's, so, you know, I mean, when anybody comes to write the volumes of my life story, they're going to like volume ones basically could be written on the, you know, the back of a box of tea bags, essentially. And what what was your first gig then? Were you writing um, for print when you were in college? No, I spent most of my time in college uh, playing pool and drinking pints. I was very much a late starter when it came to journalism. Funnily enough, I 
in, loved newspapers. I loved journalism, but I never really dipped my toe into into it properly. Really, until I hit DCU, um, when I when I finished my degree in UCD. I applied for a few different things. One of them was actually an archaeology course. So, I mean, uh, you know, if, if things had panned out differently, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be up to my oxters in mud somewhere in the Valley of the Kings. But anyway, um, I got onto the, the, the course, the journalism uh, postgrad course in DCU or NIHE as it was back then. And I mean, it was literally a single two-story cinder block build, building in the middle of nowhere out in Glasnevin. Um, and as soon as I hit that, I really started, you know, really kind of throwing myself into the whole notion that I wanted to be a journalist. And then I started putting in pieces, you know, trying to putting in pieces, you know, trying to knock it on doors and doing the usual thing that you do when you're at that stage, go, you know, try and get a few bits and pieces into print. Now, I, having said all the, the worthy stuff about all the president's men, when I actually went to uh, DCU and the the headmaster, the, the head of the class asked, you know, why everybody wanted to get into journalism and people were saying, oh, you know, I want to make a difference and social justice and business and news. And I just put my hand up and said, well, I kind of want free records because my, actually my, probably my biggest passion in life at that stage was music. Um, and I love going to gigs and love buying records and so on. And I also just fancied getting into the art side of things rather than the new side of things. And really, that's what happened. Uh, I mean, when I look back at the sort of the, the arc of my career, so many things kind of I just seem to fall into or happen to me by accident almost. Um, because my first break, I suppose, as a journalist was about oh months after I qualified from uh, DCU and I found myself in town and I literally did not have the bus fare home. I had no money in my pockets, like zero, nothing, nada, and was facing a long tramp home. And I was walking past the Sunday Tribune offices, which at that stage was on Upper Bagot Street, right across the road from Toner's Bar, which is how I navigate uh, my, my native city. Um, and I just, I don't know what got into me. I just decided that I'd go up and ask for a job. And I wandered in, asked to see the editor, which of course then was the ferocious and fearsome uh, Vincent Brown. And, you know, after cooling my heels for about half an hour, I was ushered into his office and he was sitting at his desk and he was proofing galleys. Everything was done, you know, on paper those days. And he sort of looked up and he literally said something like, who the fuck are you? I, I think it was genuinely something like that. So I, I didn't even know what I was going to say when I got in there. And I just sort of looked at him and I said, you, your, your coverage of music is really crap. Now, they had B.P. Fallon, of course, who was a bit of a legend. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you have no idea. There's a brilliant music scene around Dublin and you're not writing about it. And he looked at me and said, well, who's playing in the Baggage Inn tomorrow night? I hadn't a clue. So I just popped in the name Aslan, hadn't an idea if they were or not. And he took me by the, got up. And he walked around the desk, took me by the arm, and he starts hauling me out the door. And I burst out laughing. I thought, oh, my God, I'm getting thrown out of the bloody Sunday Tribune. And just at the last minute before he reached the door, he veered into a small office where the arts editor, Kieran um, Carthy, was sitting, typing away, minding his own business. And he just says, right, she, what's her name again? So I told him, she's going to start a music uh, column starting next week. We'll give her whatever the, the fee was. Grand. And he just turns his heel and walked out the door. And Kieran's left looking at me going, what the hell? Who are you? What am I going to do with her? And that is literally the following week I filed a, a music column. It got, uh, it was called Buzzwords with a photograph of me with a perm uh, as a byline photograph and may it never surface. And um, that was it. That was literally how I got my start in national newspapers. <laughs> it's bizarre, really. That is absolutely amazing. Um, can you remember what the first column was about or, or if you can't, any of the early columns, like what was the vibe of what you were writing about? Well, do you know, funny enough, I kind of almost fell into the style that I've, I've probably kept throughout my career. It was a sort of light, buzzy take on what was going on. You know, I would try to be sort of funny rather than serious because music journalism, as I quickly discovered, was so, I mean, it was completely dominated by men. I mean, it really mm. was. There, were, there was, I think myself and Fiona Looney were the only two women that were writing about rock. And it remained like that for quite some time. 
So I suppose I tried to do something a bit different, but just bring a different energy to it. So it wasn't going to be the usual beard stroking nerdism that you'd find plastered all over the other uh, rock columns. And I mean, I wasn't lying to Vincent when I told him there was a vibrant scene. At that stage, you know, this was sort of post U2 making it in America with the Joshua Tree particularly. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a, like just an incredible energy around the Dublin live music scene at that stage. I mean, you could not throw a pint, a pint across any bar without hitting a bass player at that stage in Dublin. And in, I mean, Cork was the same. I mean, Cork was exactly the same as well. And it was just, it was just so much fun. And so, I mean, I had plenty of material and wrote, and I mean, I made an, an effort really of writing exclusively about Irish bands as much as I could. Occasionally, you know, if somebody big came to town, I'd obviously do a review or a review would run separately. But I mean, it was enormous fun. It was enormous fun. And there was a lot of big names come, you know, beginning to come in and out of Dublin at that stage as well. I mean, the sort of the duck had been, you know, one, I suppose the duck had been broken really. I was, I was trying to think about this. Probably the Bruce Springsteen in Slane concert was, was such a huge event. And I think at that stage, it was the biggest crowd he'd ever played to. I mean, they said it was I think officially 70,000 people, but about another 30,000, uh, including myself, scrambled under hedges and, and through ditches and got in without paying. Um, so that seemed to sort of spark the, the notion among our, uh, big international marquee names and so on that Ireland was a cool place to come or a good place to come and a safe place to come. And it really sort of took off from there. So, I mean, I had so much fun doing that for, for the few years I did it. Absolutely had an absolute ball and I got paid for it. Um, what, um, did you stay writing music then in the, in the Tribune or, or were you starting to write other stuff, other feature, other features around me? Did you stay writing the music column or were you kind of broadening out in other features then? Oh yeah. I started broadening out and just doing general features. Now they were mostly sort of zeitgeisty features about sort of the scene in Dublin and so on. Um, so, I mean, they were of a theme. And I, I was actually fairly swiftly poached by the Sunday Independent to my everlasting shame. I just followed the money and was wooed away by uh, Anne Harris to join the uh, the Sunday Independent. Um, and I continued doing music there for a while. And then, <laughs> bizarrely, I ended up, they ended up making me fashion editor, which was utterly hilarious because my entire wardrobe consisted of jeans, docks and T-shirts. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking of. But again, it was about, I think, the writing. And again, I did. I, I took a totally divergent path from all the other fashion editors, most of whom were much older women than I. Um, and again, I sort of brought a different. It was. I mean, because I knew nothing about fashion, I had to sort of cover up my lack of knowledge about fashion by kind of telling funny jokes or being smart ass or being descriptive. Um, so that was sort of one area I ended up down. And then at the time, um, the Terry Keane diary was obviously a massive, uh, a massive sort of feature of Sunday newspaper life. She had the back page of Sunday Independent and wrote all about her, you know, champagne soaked lifestyle and uh, her her friendship with um, then uh, Taoiseach Charles Hawley, who she used to refer to in the diary as Sweetie. And occasionally, then as time went on, when she when she was, say, away or she wasn't well or she was on holidays, I would fill in for her. And now I used to do it under my own name um, because I've always had a sort of a rule that anything I write, I put my name to because I just, otherwise it's not journalism, to be absolutely honest with you, unless there's a very good reason, you know, that I need to be protected. But um, so, and actually I have to say, the doing a social diary, I mean, people kind of go, oh God, social diary. But if you're doing a social diary, properly. And this also, uh, you know, ended, I ended up doing a social diary when I moved to Sunday, later to the Sunday Tribune. It's actually incredible training because you're one, you're a one woman band. You have to find stories. You have to verify them. You have to write them in a way that is non-libelous, uh, if it's gossip and so on. Um, and also, you just need incredible stamina because you've got to spend an awful lot of your nights out and about, kind of going to six or seven events in an evening. You very quickly learn that you don't drink until you get to the last one, by the way. Um, and so, funnily enough, I found it a great discipline about, you know, in how to become a journalist because it was hugely about verification and not getting sued. Now, again, and I know there's a bit of a theme here, and I'm really not being overly modest. I wasn't particularly interested in, in 
sort of gossip as such. I mean, I really didn't really care who was running around with who. So I didn't always necessarily chase those stories. So therefore, once again, I would find myself sort of weaving fantastical tales with lots of colourful language to really disguise the fact that there wasn't much of a yarn underneath it. But again, you know, it was marvellous fun. And, you know, again, Dublin had, you know, an equally vibrant nightlife and social life in conjunction with with its its live music scene. So, I mean, again, there was always things to do at night or places to go and people to see. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I'd agree with you on the on the on the training of the social diary thing and how hard it is to actually do it as well. Um, I remember I did one. I'm just th- remembering this now. <laughs> I did one briefly in the Tribune um, when Noreen Haggerty was there, and it was a disaster. It was called. I remember it was called Lost in a Launch, and I just kind of. I don't know. I just couldn't couldn't really do it. You know. I think it takes a real. Um, like an all a tremendous amount of effort, and like you say, stamina to actually be present and aware in those situations and gather your copy essentially. Absolutely, it really is a discipline, and you know we've had fine, many fine writers or fine journalists have actually had their their training in it. I mean, Sarah McInerney, for instance, now yeah, writing Star North I mean, she, as far as I know, she actually took over the diary from me in the Sunday Tribune. So. You know, it's it's. Some people look down at it and say, "Oh God, you know, it's all it is is you're just rewriting press releases." No, you're not. And you know, and more than any other, almost any other type of journalism, you know, you do have that threat of being sued. And if you are writing particularly about what they call in America the bullface names, or you know, sort of fairly celebrity people, they do tend to be trigger happy when it comes to flying, you know, to, to sort of pasting writs around the place as well. So. You know, you do live in that all that in that awful fear of opening up the the dreaded envelope and seeing the you know to whom it may concern on it. Hmm. By the time I got to the Tribune, I think uh, which was two thousand four, two thousand five, you were already in New York. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we. I went to New York. I went to New York in two thousand and five, and it was. To, well, I, I was actually lived in New York twice. I lived there 2000, 2001, uh, just into 2002. And then I went back 2005 and 2006. Um, and to be honest, it was just the fulfillment of a lifelong promise I'd made to myself that I would save and save and save and make a few quid and go to New York and just spend some time there. Not do anything, not just live in New York, because I fell in love with New York from the very moment I I, I first saw it. And actually, the first time I saw New York was on a press trip. Uh, U2 brought a gang of rock hacks to New York to see them play in uh, in a couple of venues in and around New York. At the time, the Joshua Tree was released and they were sort of on the cover of Time magazine. Everybody was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I remember, I still remember just landing in New York. And just from the minute I set foot in the place going, I want to live here, even for a short while or whatever. So when I went back in 2000, uh, the very beginning of 2001, it was the fulfillment of a lifelong promise. I just take a break from journalism and just go and hang out. But of course, then 9-11 happened while I was there. So I was straight back onto the books. Mm. And you, what what was, so you you came back for a few years and then went back over there. What were you doing when you went back over? Uh, the second time I was, I was, again, I was sort of freelancing back and I was also doing a little bit of work I had sort of started again doing the odd bit of work for some of the New York papers as well. Um, one of my closest friends, she actually worked first in the, in the New York Post and the New York Daily News. So she was able to get me a few bits of work. And it did get to the stage where I did think about, you know, I had to make that decision. My visa was running out. Would I make a massive effort to stay? But it just proved impossible. Um, even though the New York Post said that they would, possibly take me on and whatever. I just couldn't get legal. That was the whole point. I wasn't going, you know, they wouldn't take me unless I was legal. And it was just, it was one of those weird catch 22 situations is you can't get a job until you have a green card, but you can't get a green card without a job first. Mm. It's just impossible. So I, so that was it. I just had to move back. And the day I was packing my, literally the day I was in my, in my apartment in Manhattan, packing my bags to come home, my phone rang and it was Frank Coughlin in the Irish Independent. And he said, oh, I believe you're coming home from New York. And I said, I'm actually heading to the airport. He said, can you come and see me when, as soon as you're back? 
So I landed the following morning, went home, had a kip and a shower, went in to meet Frank and I had a job by lunchtime. And that was sort of doing features and doing um, a, a kind of diary again for, for the Irish Independent. And so, yeah, again, it was just one of those great things without even looking for a job, I just sort of fell into one. And then I, but I really was doing that a while. And then I, I mean, I'd always written about politics, you know, through, through news. I mean, when I, way back when I worked in, in the Sunday Independent, like in between doing the, the, the social diary, the odd time, I mean, I was a full-time member of, you know, staff in, in the actual newsroom. I was just a news grunt. So, I mean, I was frequently sent out to cover news stories as such. And, um, so you know, I've always have been interested in news and followed news, and I've always have had an interest in politics. But just my career didn't take me in that direction for quite a while. But once I came back from New York and settled into the Irish Independent, you know, doing features and so on, I slowly started doing a lot of political features, more features, and then I was asked just to join the political team as a colour writer. The uh, marvelous Miriam Lord departed from the Indo shores and set sail for the, uh, for the, um, for the Irish times around that same time or just a, a short time before it. And they had obviously knew that I was a color writer and decided to let me have a go at actual full-time political writing, doing dull sketches and so on. And I, you know, I took to it like a duck to water. I mean, Oh my God, I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Cause I'd always loved reading sketches. I, and I, you know, I love the notion of a sketch of the short pieces, people like the late great Simon Hoggart and so on. Um, and it's just, I've always had the feeling that a lot of people, kind of, you know, they, they look at a massive political spread of, you know, pieces some you know, heavyweight pieces about this, that and the other. And they look at the sketch. And in a way, the sketch is a sort of a digest. It's a, it's a take on what's going on in politics at, you know, at any given moment. And, you know, they, they'd consume it because I used to, you know, get great feedback and reaction from people to the diary, much more so than if I slaved over, you know, a 2000 word dense kind of feature on politics a sketch kind of knocked out uh, at the end of a, of a busy, dull day, you know, I often got a greater reaction to. And again, timing fell my way brilliantly because I really sort of joined the politics team around 2007, like full time. And of course, that was just when it all just started going completely haywire. It was, mm. you know, it was sort of, I was there for the run up to the 2007, crazy 2007 election. And then, of course, sort of a year of turmoil with, you know, Bertie and the tribunal and so on, then him stepping down and Brian Cowan taking over. And then, of course, the financial collapse. And I mean, that was, you know, from about 2008 through to the, say, the election in 2011, was probably the most extraordinary days of my of my career, because, you know, you were sort of in the sort of strapped into the front seat or seat of the roller coaster and it just kept on going down. And you had kind of the sort of awful bird's eye view of just the sort of disintegration and collapse of of the economy and the, the pain and the fear that, that that sort of ensued and so on. And you were in there talking to people and looking at the reactions and so on. It was an extraordinary time. Absolutely extraordinary. Let's get into that in a second because yeah. the theme of the, the, the episode today with, with you is like these massive kind of political shifts that have occurred um, in in this period and, and of course this year as well. But we have skipped over... Um, the fact that you wrote a tremendously successful book on Westlife. <laughs> Do you know, when you actually mentioned it to me, I was going, oh God, I forgot about that. I'm actually not even sure of a copy of it. Yeah, I mean, again, that was sort of an accident. Um, I was very friendly with Louis Walsh. We used to hang out together over coffee and have, I mean, he's just the best gossip in the world. So he'd be bending your ear about all kinds of gossip, none of it printable, but massively enjoyable. And, you know, Westlife were up and running at this stage and they were doing really well. And he just said to me, well, you should write a book about them. And I was like, yeah, 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 sure, absolutely. And he said, no, no, you should. I thought no more of it. And then the next day I got a call from uh, Virgin Media, Virgin Publishing in London. And they were like, hi, Louis Benantos. And he says, you're going to write a book. So I was like, right, I think I, within a day or two, I was on the plane to London, went over, pitched a few ideas. They were like, oh, yeah, no, whatever you want to do. Um, and so that was about, I think, May of, God, I don't even remember what year it was. It was the early, I don't actually remember. Um, I think the book came out 2001, I think. Very much. I, thank you, because I wasn't sure. And 
I, so there must have been 2000 then. And uh, so anyway, Louis said, so, you know, Louis was sort of dealing with Virgin and he said, yeah, look, don't, like, that's fine. They, they don't need the book delivered until the end of September. And I said, that's fine. So I was starting to gather stuff together and, you know, build a kind of some kind of structure. I've never written a book before. And then Virgin ring, rang and said, how are you doing? Oh, grand, says I. That's fine. So you will have the, the, uh, the first draft to us by in four weeks' time. Now, I mean, to say I was nowhere near, <laughs> I hadn't even interviewed any of the band or anybody. So I was going, yes, of course, no problem. Ran into the editor, uh, Matt Cooper, and said to him, I have to take the next two weeks off. And he's going, why? And I still have to write a book. So I literally... In about two weeks, I flew to Sweden, did interviews with all the band. I flew to London and interviewed Simon Cowell. And I, I interviewed, I went up to Sligo and interviewed the families up there and then interviewed the Dublin families um, as well. And then I went into an office uh, over a business uh, where there was, I think, a bed on the floor. And I literally just stayed up for eight days and wrote the book. And I literally put send on it on the morning it was due. Oh, sweet God almighty. I mean, of all the deadlines I've come close to, that was like the maddest. And I rang Louis and told him, I mean, I roared at him and said, you know, you told me at the end of September. Of course, he just laughed. But I mean, <laughs> typical Louis, of course, you know, uh, but I got it done. And, uh, and it was the... The quids I made from that, I mean, not a huge amount, but it, it certainly, you know, eased my way towards uh, meeting my dream to go to New York, which is, you know, it's sort of part funded my trip to New York. Thank you, Westlife, basically. <laughs> Thank you, Westlife. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about like that, that kind of um, job of being in the maelstrom um, as somebody writing about politics, but not just reporting on the stuff in around when, when the crash mm. and the collapse, as you say, occurs, but you are of a particular disposition where you have to also catch the mood, you know, find out what's going on, um, you know, backstage somewhat, um, perhaps your, your, your music journalism uh, assisted in that and very much kind of reading between the lines of what was going on to bring that information to readers um, you described it there as, as you know, being strapped to the, the front of a roller coaster. Uh, I, I almost think that a lot of journalists um, at that time, um, I probably include myself in this as well, like it, it was so hectic that it's almost like a, a blank or something. Like it's, it's really hard to put oneself back in that time. And I, re I guess we're, we're kind of seeing the echoes of it socially now, maybe it just took that long to process. Um, but do you remember the particular kind of the, the vibe or the atmosphere in those, it's kind of really, I suppose, three years, three or four years, 2007, 2011? Yeah, I mean, the, I suppose you sort of, you know, the way when I look back at it, I mean, there's some events, you're so right. I mean, it was like just bobbing along at the top of this raging torrent going downstream. And you were just trying to keep your head above the water and try and figure out where the rocks were next. And, uh, you know, occasionally you'd haul yourself to shore, sort of gasp and then throw yourself back in. I mean, it was, you know, so I, I suppose there are sort of shining moments I remember. I mean, I do distinctly remember, um, well, Bertie's resignation, I do remember because I got a call and was told to get my ass into town uh, like pronto because Bertie was about to resign and I literally just jumped into a taxi and I was like out of the shower I didn't even dry myself I mean like I I think Ursula Halligan who was TV3 at the time reported that there were journalists running into government buildings with wet hair that was me um, and you know the sort of shock of Bertie going and then Brian Callum coming in at the same time that all these sort of ominous things were starting to happen with the economy. And, you know, Brian Cowan was sort of going on a victory tour around Offaly when he got elected. And at the same time, the, the you know, the, the, the construction industry had sort of, you know, starting to send up, you know, distress signals and the, there was rumours starting about the banks. And then, of course, there was the bank guarantee night. I mean, that was, that was extraordinary. I mean, the day we all woke up to the news that the banks have been guaranteed. And that's, I think, really when we sort of realised that this was really serious. Um, and there was just a sense of the government scrambling to try and just get on top of this. And, you know, every day, the, you know, the, the, I remember going to a briefing around that time in the Department of uh, Finance. They were doing the, the quarterly figures. 
and all these graphs and they were just all the graphs were pointing down and all the kind of you know the the kind of financial quizzes were standing there just ashen they just they were just going this is just terrible and there was just you know just sort of snapshots and vignettes of things like going to the to EGMs of the you know held of the main banks and kind of looking at these sort of guys these executives sort of lined up on the stage and these, the, the ballrooms and hotels full of weeping people, you know, particularly, say, retirees and so on that had put all their pension money into blue chip bank shares and so on. And we're now just wiped out. And just the sort of the level of distress, you know, and then you kind of, you know, it went on and it rolled on. And then we had probably the most extraordinary period whatsoever that started with the infamous Gargalgate uh, in um, in the Ardalan Hotel in Galway at the Finnafall Thinking in, in September 2010. And that sort of rolled straight into the, you know, the IMF arriving. Can you refresh people's memories about that 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 event? The, if they're not familiar with it, the the drinking or yeah. the Gargalgate, as you call it. Yeah, well, every year the, the sort of the main political parties um, have what they call a thinking, which sort of became known facetiously as a drinking, um, whereby the parliamentary party would go away to a hotel, usually outside Dublin. Uh, media would go with them to report what went on, and they'd sort of you know brainstorm what they were going to do for the for the forthcoming dull term. This particular year, uh, the night ended in a sing song, and uh, the Taoiseach Brian Cowan was certainly when I retired at three o'clock in the morning, I was staying in a and b down the road. He was in full song. Um, and then the following morning, he made an appearance on, on Morning Ireland. Uh, he was interviewed by Cahill McQuilla and he sounded um, rough, let's just say. He sounded rough. Um, it was lately, it was later, it, we were all told that he was suffering from congestion, but he, he sounded rough. But uh, that sparked much speculation among the media who were kind of going, my God, right, how are we going to deal with this? And then Simon Coveney, Finnegal Simon Coveney, obliged us by putting up a tweet uh, suggesting that uh, Brian Callum may, may have been, you know, had overdone it the, the night before, which, of course, sort of sparked a kind of like a frenzy. And um, and Finnefall sort of just handled it very badly. And, uh, the, you know, at that stage, the sort of national mood was souring and it was kind of like, well, you know, should our politicians, not just Finnefall, but any of them, you know, be sort of, you know, singing and having a good time when things are so bad. You know, it, it, it was just, you know, probably if the economy had been great, everybody would have just laughed and said, Asher, look, let, you know, what's the harm? But it was because things were so bad that it just resonated really badly with the public mood. And just that sort of, you know, then it turned, you know, it turned into a, you know, almost, a, you know, a question of, of his leadership. And at that time, you know, all the rumours were swirling about, you know, the IMF coming in. And there was just such turmoil and such fear. And there was a sort of a sense at that stage. And, you know, I would be writing about this, you know, in the doll, you know, there was this sort of sense that, like, who's in charge? There was a sort of feeling that, you know, nobody was really in charge and sort of holding on to the reins of power. And... It was almost a relief. I mean, the, the week coming up to the uh, sort of the arrival of the IMF, we had the then governor of the central bank, Patrick Honehan, going on making that extraordinary intervention in Morning Ireland, where he said, no, look, we are probably going to need a bailout, which caused absolute fury at government levels because they had been saying, no, 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 we're managing, it's okay. Even while they were quietly, you know, talking to the IMF, they were just trying to keep a lid on it. And I was actually at that famous press conference where uh, two ministers, Dermot O'Hearn and Noel Dempsey, were kind of shaking their heads going, no, 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 absolutely, no, no, no IMF, when of course the IMF were literally, I think, on the plane the way here. And I have an extraordinary vivid memory of the night the IMF arrived. It was a really cold, snowy night in, in November in Dublin. And I was in the Marion Hotel uh, waiting for the press conference to start. And I was just reading the papers. I'd actually driven down from Donegal that day. I'd been up covering that there was a by-election on and I'd driven straight down. And um, I, was aware, I was sitting in the, in the Marion Hotel and beside me I was aware there was a big group of people and they were sort of passing notes and so on. It was only when I looked closely I realised it was two of the guys from the IMF uh, and a bunch of mandarins from Marion Street and they were obviously going through the memorandum of understanding. And eventually they all drifted off and there was just uh, Ashoka Modi who was the sort of the deputy head of mission I think with the IMF 
and he was putting on his coat. And I remember leaning over to him and sort of just sort of saying, can I ask you something? And I didn't introduce myself because I was a journalist. I said, are we going to be okay? And I was sort of asking as a citizen rather than, than a journalist, because, I mean, I, we were going into the press conference, so it, it, it was meaningless for me to get anything from him really at that stage. And he said, no, you'll be fine. It'll be difficult, but you'll be fine. And it was going across the road and there was this sort of scenario in the press centre in government buildings, which is, you know, your classic small little auditorium. And we had three members of the Irish government on stage. There was the Taoiseach, the Taunishta, and um, the head of the Green Party, I think, uh, John Gormley. And they spoke for a few minutes and so on. And then they walked off the stage and three strangers walked on to kind of the stage of, you know, the government press secretary, press centre. And I think everybody kind of drew in their breath and you just thought, my God, we're not in charge anymore. Our, our sovereignty is gone. And there was a real feeling of sorrow. You know, it was it was quite quite emotional, you know, the whole thing around that. And I think that's what people now who maybe didn't live through it don't understand that it wasn't just the fear of losing your job or losing, you know, your, your house. I mean, they were real as well. But there was a sort of almost sense of shame that of, of losing our sovereignty mixed with a sort of quiet relief that somebody now was, was actually running the show. It was an mm. ordinary time. Yeah, that sense of kind of embarrassment as well. Um, I, I remember being really profound. But I think that like one of the things... Um, you know, in the in the craziness of that time, let's say uh, the Brian Cowan, you know, morning after the night before, and there's such a huge echo of uh, now of Golfgate in that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just these behaviours that are very, very poorly timed, and um, that speak of basically not giving a crap. Yeah. Um, but another thing that it raised at the time was, and you could kind of sense it in the reporting at the time, like. The, the understandable reticence of journalists to actually call this out because, you know, even though journalists, of course, aren't elected representatives, there's kind of, there was, I, I sense there's this kind of like, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And I think it, you know, maybe this is just a narrative that I'm, I'm concocting here, but it did something to that relationship between press and politicians, that closeness. Now, some may say that closeness is very necessary or whatever. Others say it's way too overblown. You know, this is not some like establishment conspiracy that's all kind of colluding to uh, pump out, you know, centrist ideology or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but like, what do you think about though that relationship and how does it function as you see it? Because obviously there's such a need for access, but then there's such a need for distance. Yeah, you know, it is a, it's such a delicate balance really, because, you know, like any other aspect of journalism that you, you know, you, that's dealing with news and so on, you do have to build up a relationship of trust with people that you're dealing with. You have to, because if they have a story or there's something they wanted to, you know, to, to get out into the public domain, they want to make sure that they as a source will be protected and the information that they're imparting will be dealt with in a in an even-handed and fair way. Now, this is different from people who are shoving stuff at you hoping you'll spin it. I mean, that's completely different and any journalists worth their soul knows where they've been sold, you know, sold a line and knows when they're getting something of genuine value and interest. I mean, there is, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious. Um, but, you know, balanced with that is obviously the, the need not to be too chummy, um, you know, not to feel like, you know, not to be beholden to any of the, the politicians. And, you know, Leinster House is kind of odd. I always sort of said, it's a little bit like, you know, it always reminded me when I went there of, you know, being in a small country village where you're, you can't go two yards without somebody saying hello to you and how are you doing and how's it going? And everybody knows, you know, what's going on and every, you know, everybody wants to stop and have a chat. Um, it, you know, it's very, for, for a large, gracious building, it's actually quite a small place inside. And, you know, the corridors that, you know, press and politicians share are fairly limited, but because it's small, you know, you, you are passing each other all the time. You're eating in the, you know, in the, in the canteen, the public canteen together, or you might be in the bar. Um, and this sort of myth about 
you know, politicians and journalists, you know, going on the absolute piss every night is absolutely rubbish. I mean, it just doesn't happen. There are, you know, lists like anything. Genuine friendships do strike up. But I mean, for by and large, you know, politicians keep themselves and journalists keep themselves. I mean, there's not a huge amount of crossover at, on the social level. But on a professional level, you know, you do have to keep that strike, that balance um, between, you know, overcoming the sort of the ingrained mistrust that a lot of politicians have for, you know, for journalists. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's good they have mistrust because, you know, journalists are there to find out stuff. And if a politician is up to something or isn't, or isn't up to the job or is up to some kind of shenanigans or, or, you know, dodgy practices, it's the journalist's jobs to find out. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, I think most of the, Polcors do navigate it pretty well. Um, but, the, you know, again, if you look, just talking about Golfgate, I mean, if you look at that, uh, Aoife Moore, who played a huge role in that story, you know, she wasn't in the political game that long. Um, so, and yet she still landed like that absolutely massive scoop. So, you know, again, it's, it's you know, it is a, it's a, it's a, it is a tricky course to navigate. I mean, Personally, as a as a sort of color writer, stroke sort of sketch writer, I didn't really need those relationships with the journal with the politicians. Excuse me, to, to the same extent because I wasn't relying on information and drops uh, of, of stories for my work. My my line of work was purely observational and reportage. That sort of mixture of observation reportage that color writing political color writing is. So I suppose in a different, I, you know, I was a slightly different animal, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I could approach my relationships with politicians, you know, in a completely different way. I mean, there was no give and take. I didn't really want anything from them. Um, but it's, you know, it is tricky. And I think, you know, journalists do have to be incredibly careful, particularly political journalists, because, you know, I mean, just go onto Twitter, open up Twitter and just, you know, have a look, scroll down you know, on uh, the replies to various journalists as they post up stories, political journalists that post up stories online. And I mean, it's just a stream and lots of time of invective, you know, about, you know, you're in the pocket of this and you're in the pocket of that and you're all cozy together and all that, you know. So, you know, a lot of that is absolutely unfounded, but I think, you know, it does behove journalists to make sure that it remains unfounded and, you know, mm -hmm. there, there is clear, clear blue water between them, the politicians, most of the time. A big kind of vacuum, I suppose, of of um, in political journalism, you know, in my opinion, I guess, was was exposed this year when um, in the run up to and during uh, the, the 2020 general election campaign, it was an extraordinary election. Um, I don't really I don't like the narrative so much that nobody saw coming because a lot of journalists, um, myself included, were writing about how Sinn Féin were, were connecting and so on and that it was going to, that that was going to come to pass, yeah. um, whether whether other people kind of refused to see that um, or didn't want to see it or or maybe it was just kind of outside of their, their, their own perspective or whatever, which is fair enough. But like we kind of forget obviously something much greater and more existential took over. But we do kind of forget that this is the year where the political landscape has has just completely changed. Now, whether it will continue to change or whether that change will solidify or whether it will change back or whatever, it is it, like, how has it been from your perspective as a party political year, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it has been an extraordinary, every time somebody says the 2020 election, I'm like, oh, I can't believe it was only this year. But yes, it was. Um, there's a few things there. I think elections have become, as a rule, um, more challenging for journalists from several points of view. I think polling has become problematic because a lot of the ways that polls are, are political polls are conducted don't necessarily throw up accurate pictures because, say, even, for instance, polls that would contact people on, you know, fixed landlines and so on, you know, nobody uses them anymore or very few people do or it's certain cohorts, you know, certain age group that would use them. Um, and, you know, and for other reasons as well. So polling, you know, I think journalists who sort of rely on polls for, you know, absolute information 
it's probably a bit unwise. I mean, we saw how, you know, Jones got caught out in the run-up to the particularly 2016 US election and, and the Brexit referendum. I mean, they were nowhere on that, the polls and a lot of the media coverage. But I think as well, just on, on terms of um, covering general elections, because an awful lot of newsrooms have cut back, you know, enormously on staff and are strapped for resources generally, um, the covering campaigns can be more problematic because they don't, really there isn't the personnel to sort of properly spend time on ground in places and really gauge public mood. An awful lot of journalists, and it's not really the journalist's fault, this, you know, they you're sort of dipping in and out of, you know, you're following somebody for a few hours and then you're over the course of the country and you're following a politician from a different party or no, or no party for a few hours. And you, it's, you kind of end up with sort of a fractured picture rather than a full picture of, of what's mm. going on. Um, so it can be very difficult, I think, to kind of gauge a national picture when you're you're just frantically stretched everywhere for short periods of time. But, I mean, you are absolutely correct. You know, again, you know, it did change enormously this year. And, you know, I think this probably did start, you know, with the, you know, with the la- after the, the aftermath of the last election and the sort of the cobbling together of a of the competence supply agreement, which was equally, you know, at that time was seen as incredibly seismic. You know, the, the sort of the two main parties, old civil war parties, working together for the first time, albeit, you know, Fianna Fáil doing a kind of a Schrodinger's cat kind of thing where they're simultaneously in government and out of it. But you know, this election did change everything um, because we just saw, you know. Sinn Féin, you know, surge back. And I mean, let's face it, though, you know, they, you know, based on how they did in the midterm elections, you know, Sinn Féin weren't particularly confident. You know, their confidence had been shaken slightly going into this election and they weren't necessarily sure themselves that they were going to do that well. And, you know, the then we just saw this thing, this sort of this incredible reluctance of any of the of either of the two main parties to kind of go into power with you know you know each other or with somebody else and you know it looked for a while that nobody wanted to um and then of course you know the, the formation of government was obviously massively complicated then by obviously the beginning of the of the pan- pandemic and so on um but and i think the government that came out of it I think that most people said, oh, look, if it wasn't for, you know, the, what was going on in the rest of the world, you know, not this government wouldn't. There's no way that this, this government is going to hang together and we'd be back to the polls in no time when Sinn Féin are going to come back, come roaring back um, as the main party. Um, but then it was just such an unpredictable year and the government, which got off to absolutely horrendous start. I mean, you, you know, I mean, they went through, you know, my God, I mean, they went through, you know, ag ministers like, you know, Kim Kardashian goes goes through fecking, you know, I don't know, selfies of her arse or something. I don't know. But I mean it was just, you know, it was it was just incredible just how it all fell apart so fast. And, you know, they were scrambling to try and, you know, get some kind of coherent message going between Finnefall and Finnegal and there was infighting and fights and then Sinn Fein were just sitting there going, you know, bring it on, lads. All we have to do is just sit here. You guys are doing a fine job of tearing tearing lumps out of each other. We don't even have to, you know, help. Um, and then you sort of the Greens once again were sort of, you know, trying to be the, you know, trying not to be the mud guard, you know, of, as as the brown stuff was flying around. Um, and it all looked very kind of hairy um, as people were just trying to get their wrap their head around what was, you know, how this was going to play out and how it was going to work and where they're going to get the communications together. And, you know, it was essentially really, I think, looking back on it, it'll probably really be seen as a sort of wartime government, you know, as sort of the whole extent of the pandemic sort of rolled across the country. I I think it will be seen, you know, they will look back and say, yeah, that was kind of a wartime government. Um, Now, you know, I think to everybody's surprise, probably including the two main parties, you know, they do seem to have sort of settled down. And again, maybe it's because (laughs) in a way, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, um, had I'm not going to say a natural enemy or a, a common com, common enemy, but a common sparring partner, I suppose, in like Nefet and the Department of Health. You know, so it is in a funny sort of way, the government has sort of had to band together to kind of deal with you know or, or do or do pushback at various times against various recommendations and and reports you know coming out from the, the various kind of health stakeholders and in a way it might have actually helped them sort of settle down together that's what mm. I, mean. I don't know but just you know I, you know it's it's um 
there's a, you know, you put it this way. I think at this stage into the previous administration, um, and probably for a year afterwards, the confidence and supply agreement several times looked like it was going to tip over and just disintegrate. I mean, you know, we came, if you recall, in the December to, I think it was 2017, we came damn close to getting an election for Christmas when the, the whole thing came to, uh, the two parties came to a massive impasse over Francis Fitzgerald and yeah. the Tuzla Rao and all that. Um, and we almost, we, all, we, we almost were knocking on doors or standing behind politicians knocking on doors on Christmas week. And that would have been fun and games. But, you know, there was, a, there was always an inherent instability to the competence and supply arrangement, probably also exacerbated by the fairly colourful cast of, of independent characters that were involved in the, the government as well. Um, whereas at this stage, and I think again, it's it's probably you know a forced discipline, but you know things have quietened down. They, they definitely have. I mean, there, there has there's, there's a sense of of you know things have simmered down. Now we'll see. You know, it could only be a temporary sort of ceasefire between the two parties, and and even inter-party, the usual internecine warfare is the guns are are reasonably muted. You know, again, whether that's sort of just forced upon them all by by circumstances, we may see sometime next year. With so much chaos in government, uh, like this year at the outset, and with you know the overwhelming context of of the pandemic, and with you know really kind of discourse uh, on and debate either within you know the doll, for example, or outside of it, um, kind of being very trashy, I suppose, uh, and um, very adversarial uh, and, you know, all of the things that we, mm. that we kind of understand uh, the, the frenetic energy of, of, of discourse at the moment. What do you think, if anything, has been good this year politically? Like either in terms of, you know, an individual who's impressed you or something that you think we can feel optimistic about or, you know, policy that was made or not that there's been much legislation made, but like something that, that felt like, okay, that was a good thing because it's been so hard in, on, on multiple levels and politicians are always, uh, kind of constantly under attack, sometimes for good reason, but sometimes it just feels almost habitual, um, yeah. the discourse around it. Yeah. What do you think is, is a good vibe? Well, I think looking back to, uh, you know, the start of the, you know, the whole pandemic and so on, um, I think they made it, one of the decisions I think they made was the swift introduction of the um, COVID payment scheme. Um, I think that at a time of massive uncertainty, it was put in place. It was easy enough to navigate. Now, later on, of course, it ran into kind of various problems with people leaving the country and told they, they, if they left the country, they wouldn't come back. But I think the initial introduction of it was swift. And I think it probably helped steady the national ship because people thought, OK, I'm, I'm out of work. It's not great. Nobody had any idea how long it was going to going to last for, but it did provide a sort of you know a little cushion of certainty that there was something coming in. Um, so I think that was you know like of the sort of decisions made you know early on when they were kind of making this up on the back of an envelope as they went along, that probably was quite a good one. And um, after that, well, you see, it's kind of odd because. This year, I mean, the bloody pandemic has just it really has squashed everything else. You know, there's so many sort of decisions have been kicked out of touch or put in long finger because, you know, funds have had to be re, you know, di- re-diverted into other areas. Um, and also sort of Brexit. I mean, if you think we've been consumed by Brexit for the, you know, for the last four, you know, over four years now. And yet, even though we're kind of coming up to the, the, the genuine crunch, it's it's kind of sort of, you know, not really at the forefront of people's minds. And I'm not sure that, you know, I, I think they might, I think that the government have possibly taken their eye off the ball in the last while about this because, you know, the music coming out, I mean, of, you know, Brussels at the moment is pretty bad. And 
again, I mean, the amount of times, Una, I've gone to Brussels and it's been, you know, sitting in the Justice Lipsius building, which is this sort of huge big building where all the press kind of gather and it's sort of, you know, no windows and, you know, the usual kind of bright lights and all that. You know, and he'd be there bog-eyed until the wee small hours of the morning, you know, waiting for a 2 a.m. press conference to start because finally, like, some deal has been literally just, you know, put cobbled together at the last minute. And, I mean, they don't, you know, once again, we're here. But I think before where the government were good at apprising people about the, the you know, the bad possibilities, you know, that will emerge from, from you know, a, a bad deal or a no-deal Brexit, you know, this time they've they haven't really alerted people to the fact that you know, you know, the UK may crash out or else it may leave with a bad deal. But either way, it's you know, we could be in for a rocky a rocky time of it. You know, early in twenty twenty one, just as the sort of you know the fallout of Brexit you know happens, and I just think people are just they've forgotten about it, or they haven't been told about it, or they haven't been warned about it. Um, maybe the government have said, look, everybody's head is just melted at the moment. Let's not, you know, do this. But I just wonder, you know, are people going to turn around and say, look, you didn't warn me that this is going to have this implications for, you know, nationally, for my business, for travel, for education, for whatever. You know, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just sort of worries me slightly that they, they really haven't kind of got their act together about sort of the public message on that yet. So that, that's kind of a non-running one. I'd be kind of curious to see how that pans out. Oh, that's a really, really good point about the the eye off the ball feeling at the moment who do you think um who of the new kids on the block uh have impressed you in terms of TDs and senators um who has impressed me let me see um let's see i'm like i'm always i'm always sort of uh yeah, this all, I'm always sort of scratch my head about this one. Um, and I see again, I feel sorry actually tell you for the for, you know for a lot of the new TDs because normally they get the kind of you know they come in and they get a great they get a great chance to shine um, in terms of you know sort of dull performances and so on. You know they're in the dull, they're able to you know make their statements, but because you know there's it's been down in the National Convention Centre or the Dublin Convention Centre or whatever it's called. Um, you know, our else sort of sort of small dolls, we call them. We haven't been able to really gauge their, you know, how effective they are, you know, on the, you know, kind of in terms of how they perform. Now, um, Holly Cairns, I have to say, Social Democrat, I think that uh, she is actually uh, very effective. And I also think that um, Jennifer... Sorry, I'm just completely brain dead. Jennifer Carol McNeil actually mm. has been good as well. She's, you know, she's very, she's, you know, for somebody who's kind of not only only in the door, you know, a wet weekend, you know, she's she's a very effective communicator, um, and I think she kind of picks interesting issues as well. And I, you know, just, you know, I just I'm also noticed that you know, so the, the names are springing to mind are all women. And of course, you know, going back to the general election beginning of the year, I remember sitting on, I think it was Claire, on Claire, one of the Claire Byrne panels, you know, in the middle of the night as sort of the results were all trickling in. And I was doing a count up of the amount of women who'd been returned to the doll. And I was just like, had my head on the desk kind of going, this is just terrible. Um, you know, one extra woman had been returned from the previous doll. And, you know, just thinking, you know, what's it going to take? What is it going to take? Actually, I know it's going to take. Sorry, I know this is a slight uh, detour, but um, it's just going to take the government getting serious about, you know, serious about gender quotas and, and proper financial penalties for people who, you know, for parties that just do not get their act together uh, for the locals and for the nationals, you know, in terms of encouraging and supporting more women to run for, for office. Because, you know, they, I, you know, you do find that the women that go into Leinster House, what they do is, you know, they are collegial and they do try and set up kind of caucus groups within, you know, Leinster House to kind of work on policies together, you know, on a cross-party basis. And it's something that you don't often see among the male the male TDs. And I think that speaks a lot for the sort of sectarian nature of, of, of Leinster House. Mm. Before you go now, um, I have a very, very important question. Oh, um, <laughs> so the, tri- the Tribune had towners, the Times has mulligans, the Indo arguably 
Palace Bar, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what you'd say about that. Mm. Um, which, which basically my, my question, well, you can answer the Indo, Indo one, but, but my question is, what do you think is, is the greatest um, journalist pub in Dublin? Oh, what a question. Um, I, it has to be Toners. And I mean, it just is. I mean, I love the palace and I'm also very fond of Mulligan's uh, on Poobag Street. But Toners to me is the one. I mean, I'll tell you, I remember coming out of the Tribune one night and it was Friday night and I was wrecked and I was really tired and the traffic was really heavy on, on Bagot Street. And I was trying to cross to go into the pub and get a pint. And the tongue was only hanging out to me for a pint of Guinness. And eventually I managed to dodge between the traffic. I was probably there for two or three minutes. And I walked in. The place was actually hammered. Behind the bar, Tommy looks up and he just hands me this absolutely pristine fresh pint. And I was looked at him and I said, I, he said, I've been watching out the window trying to cross the road uh, for the last few minutes. So I thought, okay, that's absolutely brilliant. And I think it was the same night. I was sort of standing there and I obviously looked wrecked. And one of the other barmen, um, Jim, I think it was, said, do you want a seat? And I was going, oh yeah, but everywhere's full. And next thing I heard him sort of barking at somebody in the snug and a couple of kids with sort of rucksacks, you know, obviously sort of students or whatever, kind of scuttled out. And then he goes, there you go. So, you know, it was, you know, it was, Toners was always one of those those places that was a haven for journalists. They didn't really mind if he got a bit rowdy and sort of, you know, kind of shouting and sort of having a bit of an El Sing song. They liked the crack with journalists. They looked after us. Um, and even, I'll finish actually, do you know what? This is a lovely story to finish on because it actually brings us back to where we started. Um, obviously, when I worked in the Tribune the first time, we drank in toners. And when I joined the Tribune for the second time, I mean, obviously, there's been, been a long gap. And I really hadn't been in toners much between the two because I went to the other journalist pubs. And for the end of my first day, Matt Cooper said to me, come on, I'll buy, come across the road, toners, I'll buy you a pint. So I said, fine. We're walking across the road. And I said, God, you know, it's absolutely years since I've been in here. Absolutely years. So Matt goes, oh, God, sure, we're regulars in here now. They know us all. So I opened up the door of the pub. It was very quiet, Tuesday, Tuesday night, Tuesday sort of evening. And Paul, the main man, uh, was behind the bar and he was pulling a pint. He looks up and he sees me, looks back down. He says, the usual lease. <laughs> now, it has been at least 10 years since I've been in there. And I just thought, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> well, long live Towners and long live yourself um, to Thank good you health know. indeed. Thanks so much for the chats, Lisa. That's always, always a pleasure. Take care of yourself. <laughs> <laughs>